Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Business of Cyber. And man, do we have a great guest for you today. I'm excited to introduce Ron Gula from Gula Tech Adventures. Ron was the founder and CEO of Tenable and acted as their CEO from their founding in 2002 till 2016. Since then, Ron's founded Gula Tech Adventures with his wife, Cindy, to invest in companies and nonprofits that defend cyberspace. Now, before we get into my conversation with Ron, a quick word from the sponsor of today's show. Hunters is a SOC platform built for your security team. Hunters empowers companies to move beyond SIM with unlimited ingestion and normalization of security data at a predictable cost. Using Hunters, a CISO at a leading online retailer tripled the amount of data ingested by her security team while cutting costs from their legacy SIM provider by 75%. Be sure to visit hunters.security to learn how your organization can move beyond SIM. Now I'm excited to hand it over to Ron Gula. Well, the party is off to a good start. Ron, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the show. How are you? Doing good, Joe. How's your day going? Very well. Well, as a way to kick us off, I'd love to maybe start with a little bit of context. Um, so could you kick us off by telling me a little bit about how you found your way into the world of cybersecurity? I wanted to be a fighter pilot in the Air Force. I actually did Air Force ROTC. I was always kind of a computer nerd and whatnot, but I went to flight school and I didn't graduate flight school. It turns out I black out at, uh, at low G's. And I said, look, I'm going to go back into computers. And I had a really cool career as an officer in the Air Force working computers. And my very, very last tour was at the National Security Agency. And that's how I got into cybersecurity. Hmm. Okay. And what did the experience at the Air Force um, sort of teach you that maybe you still think back to as kind of valuable lessons today? Yeah, a, that's, a, that's a great question. So there's a couple, couple lessons. So first of all, nobody called cyber cyber in the, in the 90s, you know, even the 80s. It was hacking, right? It was hacking. It was fracking, freaking, all this kind of different, different stuff. And when the military got a hold of it, it was these really ominous terms like information warfare, information operations, computer network operations, right? I don't think people know what those things really mean outside of the cyber industry, you know, anyway. So we were all information security people and changed the name to cybersecurity. So the first thing that my Air Force, you know, time kind of thought me was that, you know, these terminologies we use, they're fleeting. You know, this is, this is a new thing for our society. The second thing is my flight experience, I could speak pilot. So when later I was doing penetration tests or talked about compliance findings, you know, it's not the same thing to some general who's, you know, who's a former like F-15 fighter pilot. You know, telling them, look, this is just like busting a check ride, or you know, the, air, the airplane's not certified to take off, and those kind of analogies really kind of helped me have a good career as far as communicating about cybersecurity issues outside of cybersecurity. Very cool. Okay, and you know, I, I speak with a lot of uh, you know security executives and you know entrepreneurs like yourself, and quite a few have um, a military background, and I'm always curious to understand sort of the pivot from. Uh, you know, maybe a military career to entrepreneurship and company building. So could you tell me a little bit about what that transition was like and, and what the experience was like going from military to, you know, private sector and, and ultimately founding your own business? So that, you know, the military doesn't really teach 
entrepreneurship. And someone's going to probably reach out and strangle me for, for, for saying that. But, you know, military <laughs> is designed to, to win wars, right? It's designed to have a mission ready, you know, lethality. There's a lot of luck, a lot of that. There's a lot of that going on. And there's not necessarily a lot that corresponds to the private sector, except, you know, things like communication, leadership, trustworthiness. I mean, that that's all a given, right? But like, what's what's the equivalent of, you know, being a, uh, you know, a tough fighter, you know, somebody who's going to overcome obstacles? What's the equivalent of that in the private sector? Is it sales? You know, is it trying to out-engineer your component? Is it, is it, is it you know, your, your competing companies and whatnot? So some of those skills are very, very relevant. Some of them are really, really are not. What, what I took out of the military was I, I collected almost every leader I worked for, every manager I had, because sometimes I had officers, sometimes I had civilians, but whoever was my boss, more or less, I always tried to learn at least one or two things that they did that I wanted to emulate. And of course, one or two things that they did that I didn't want to emulate. So by the time I got in the private sector, I had quite a list of stuff I wanted to try out and see what, what, what suited me very well. I like that approach in terms of, uh, you know, reflecting on leaders that you've had and, you know, not only learning what you, what you want to emulate, but also what you want to avoid. Um, and of course, not naming any names or anything, but what were some of those maybe traits or characteristics that when you did transfer into the private sector, you said, all right, these are the things that, you know, I want to bring with me or the types of characteristics that I want to exhibit. Well, if you're, if you're a Star Trek fan, you know, Captain Kirk and Jean-Luc Picard, they, they always had a knack for, you know, listening to all the information and make a decision. So a lot of my leaders who could listen to many, many different, different inputs and say, we're going to go this way um, and just and make a decision, even when they don't have all the right information, having that gut instinct of knowing when you can make an, 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 a decision and when you have to get more information stuff. I had a lot of people I worked with who just constantly were in information gathering mode and they never made a decision. And, you know, sometimes that's the right course of action. But, you know, I really saw a difference in success when people could take some chances and risks and not wait for the perfect solution. And, you know, a lot of the times for the companies I founded, you know, people who've worked with my products before, they, they get the job done. They don't have to be 100 percent perfect and all the time, but they are rock solid and, you know, achieve the objective. I know one of the, the subjects that uh, I would love to get into, and this could be a good good segue into it, is sort of the origin story and, and maybe some uh, some lessons from your founding experience and, and uh, you know time as CEO of Tenable. Um, I, I guess as a pivot, when you think about you know dec- decision making and just generally decisiveness in operating with incomplete information, as you think back on your experience with with Tenable. Are there some examples of decisions that you had to make or that you and your uh, colleagues had to make um, with incomplete information? And if so, can you walk us through some examples? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So, you know, for those not familiar with the Tenable story, Tenable was the second company I helped found. The first company was Network Security Wizards, and it was a network intrusion detection company. And I really wanted to do a second company that was completely different. So if you're going to detect hackers and you want to prevent hackers, you know, some people might have gone into intrusion prevention or, you know, being more active defense. Why not just do configuration auditing and patch management and identifying all the vulnerabilities that are there? So uh, we connected with Renaud Darrison, who's, who was a co-founder of Tenable. He had written the Nessus vulnerability scanner. And we started out with uh, with, with that a management console and 
you know, almost 20 years later, it's, it's the leading vulnerability management product out there. Um, they call it cyber exposure. I could put my tenable hat on if I had to, it's all, it's all good. <laughs> but along the way, I mean, you know, your first customer, your first million dollar month, your first, you know, venture capital fundraise, your first public offering. I mean, those are major, major milestones. And I've had a lot of people point out to me that most companies don't go past 5 million in revenue. You know, when, once you get to a hundred million in revenue, you're like in the 1% of all companies that, that, that exist at that point. So it's, it, there's a lot of different things that, uh, that we had to struggle with. Uh, one of the big things we had to struggle with is at the time, software in the early 90s, late, late 2000s, I'm sorry, late, 2000, late 90s, early 2000s, software was sold on a perpetual license. You would buy a piece of software and you would pay maintenance. And the whole industry was transforming from perpetual licenses to SaaS. Now, of course, we all know SaaS right now, software as a service. But imagine having a huge Salesforce, channel partners, pricing, SKUs, government customers, customers that we've given like most favored nation status to, or even charged for some custom features that they've, they've wanted. That goes out the window. It's like a complete renegotiation. So that was one of the things I was very, very proud of. Mm. Uh, the, my, my co-founder, Tenable Jack Hufford, um, you know, and all the people who had to work on that, you know, it's not just making a great product, selling the product, charging the product, supporting the product, customer success, that kind of stuff all need. And that's just probably one of like a hundred stories of things we had to grapple with at Tenable. Yeah. I can imagine that was a, a pretty incredible transition to have to work through. Um, you know, other than that, what, what were, you know, as you reflect on the experience with Tenable, what were some of maybe the key lessons that you learned um, that have shaped just sort of generally speaking, how you think about building companies today? Yeah. So I was really motivated by uh, just the technology evolution. So when we started, you know, Tenable, it was, it was scanning Windows computers, Linux computers, Solaris, maybe scanning with credentials, you know, trying to get a more exact patch audit. And what was really going on when you look at the arc of technology from the early 2000s till now, you saw some really interesting things. You saw the, the, the true birth of mobility you know, I need to audit my phone, my iPad. Um, you, you, you saw the birth of the cloud where you had SaaS applications that had just as much data and just much of a blast radius for attacking as maybe your local active directory server. You saw virtualization. And then just as I left Tenable, you really saw things like containerization, you know, doing things like elasticity, you know, come out. And along all those ways, you know, people had vulnerabilities. People had assets. People had this, this digital sprawl. And, uh, you know, Tenable called it cyber exposure, which I think is a great name to kind of communicate just all that digital exhaust of assets that you have out of there. And along the way, we kept having to invest in the technology stack so we could audit these things. And when we said audit, it, you need to discover them. You need to find vulnerabilities in them. And it, then you need to also see if they're configured correctly. And that's something Tenable did really well and still really does well today. Okay. And you, you mentioned some some examples of milestones, um, you know, first fundraising, first uh, million dollar month, I think was another example you, you gave, you know, with a, such a, you know, successful and uh, I would say well-known company like, like Tenable, what were some of those maybe milestones or inflection points um, that you reflect kind of fondly on um, in, in the company's growth? Yeah, there, there's two things. And I, I really hope any founder out there can experience this, you know, for themselves. And I, of course, you know, couldn't have done this without everybody at, at, uh, at, at Tenmo and all the hard work there. But 
there was one year I cut a cake for celebrating 300 employees and 400 employees in the same year. And it was almost like the joke for Seinfeld, where there's always somebody's birthday. You know, we had, uh, you know, we had these kind of celebrations. We really tried to make Temple very inclusive and, 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 you know, doing that sort of thing. And then, you know, as we raised money, as we raised capital, you know, our first round was from, from Excel partners, you know, all of that investment was, was basically secondary. You know, most, most companies, they start, they have an idea, they raise money, they sell their stock. They try to get sales from their customers to, you know, rise to a valuation that's better than what the investment happened at. Tenable was always profitable and made, made uh, you know, we were very cash flow positive, you know, over, over the years. Mm. So when we raised, uh, you know, those, those rounds, they were secondary sales. So we, we had a moment where all the founders were able to pull in, you know, the employees and basically tell them that they had a chance to sell their stock. And, you know, we created some millionaires. We created some people who were paying off college. We created some people who were, you know, were able to pay off their homes and whatnot. And that was a very emotional thing. And it's tough because, you know, you, you don't really want to say, should you sell this? Should you not sell this stuff? Because, you know, Tenable's growing and, you know, we did it again, you know, a couple of years later, of course, again, again, when, when, when they went public, but that experience of, you know, having people come in and, and benefit from sharing in, in the company's growth is, is really motivating. And it's something every founder I think should, uh, should be looking at. Was running the company profitably a uh, sort of stated objective from early on, or was that just a, you know, a byproduct of efficiency and, and success of the business? It's, it's a little bit of both. It's uh, a lot of the attitude came from, uh, you know, I, we worked really closely with my, uh, my wife ran operations, Cindy Gula. And, oh, you know, cool. we really tried to make, you know, we didn't, we didn't have this model of, Hey, we can just raise more money and sell stock. We were like, let's, let's build a great product and build a great business from, from our, from our customers. And, and that just made us a little bit more, I think, you could say lean, but you could, you could say that everybody knew where, where, where it was. And, you know, frankly, today I get pitches from companies and I look at their cash flow, I look at their, their, uh, their fundraising, and I can tell that, guess what? They raised $6 million and they didn't even make $6 million, you know, two years later. So, you know, so what are they building that there's this future valuation in the future? When you're focused on customers and cash, you know, you can actually, uh, you know, have a lot better, better, um, I guess, decisions when it comes to building your company. Now, I've had a lot of people come to me and say, look, you, what, what Tenable did in 20 years, we could have done 10 if we raised more money and whatnot. And, and I really wonder, I, uh, I really wonder. Times have changed and, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I have no regrets about the path we went. And uh, I think it's quite interesting. You know, you, you say times have changed and uh, I hope this doesn't come across as, as pessimistic. So, you know, correct me if, if you think that the, the tone is wrong, but, you know, I've talked with, with founders and investors who say, you know, to the effect of it, it takes $5 million to build an enterprise level cyber product. Um, therefore, you know, you need to raise that much, if not more to get something off the ground and get something sellable. So do you think, you know, running a startup, uh, you know, profitably early on is, is easier or more difficult today, or, or is it uh, just fundamentally different than when, when Tenable was founded in the, the early 90s, or late 90s, early 2000s? I think what's happened today is that the process of doing cybersecurity, whether you're doing cyber hygiene, threat hunting, you know, intrusion detection, red team, whatever, the, it's become so niche 
that mm. if you want to be the world's best, um, let's just say, I'm just going to pick on a company. Uh, let's, let's talk about routing for a little bit. Let's say you want to be the world's best company in auditing routers. Well, you know, Tenable and Qualys and Rapid7 do that a bit. And I think all the new asset discovery things do that a bit. So if you're going to do that, you really, really have to be a level better than the established companies that are out there. Not only do you have to be a level better, you've got to be a level better enough that somebody at a company needs to spend money on your product and do that. So in order, you don't need $5 million to do that. You need to have a good idea and a good idea of somebody doing, uh, who's willing to solve that problem with you. Because if it's only 5% better than the existing stuff, it's not a good idea. And the problem now is we have a lot of companies out there that are good companies, but they're not that much better than, than the incumbent company that's out there. Therefore, they're raising more money on sales and marketing and trying to you know, convince people through, through those kind of activities to try their product. But in reality, there's not that much new out there. Yeah. You know, we're, we're going to bounce around the agenda a little bit. And I think that's a good, good segue into uh, some of the investing that you, you do today within GTA, Gula Tech Adventures. Um, and I'm curious to maybe understand from a profile standpoint, what it is that you look for in organizations and in, in investable companies. You know, we can talk about founders and market and product ideas and, and those important factors, but, you know, do, do you look for uh, organizations that are, are completely transformational and doing something new? Do you look for organizations that are, you know, that 10, 5, 10% better than how it's done today? Or what's kind of your, your philosophy with how you, uh, you know, evaluate investable businesses? So there's, there's a scene in the matrix where in the matrix two, where Neo has to fight Seraph and he, Seraph makes the comment, you truly don't know somebody until you, you fight them. And I, and I would argue that when I left Tenable, I thought I knew cyber until you invest in a founder and a tech that you believe in in a certain niche market, you really don't know the, the ins and out of that market. So, you know, Google Tech Adventures, it's, it's, uh, we're, we're trying to give back to the community. It's all money that we've made from our previous investments in Tenable and whatnot. We're trying to invest it right back. We do a good bit of philanthropy. We do a good bit of trying to, um, you know, support, uh, I'll just say, our policy leaders, you know, with advice about uh, what's going on with tech and threats and, and, and whatnot. But when it comes to investing, you know, we're looking for three different areas. The first area is we consider secure by design. So if you use this technology and you deploy it on your network, you completely take an entire MITRE attack framework category or a certain class of vulnerabilities, you know, off the table. And we've got investments in everything from uh, next generation intrusion prevention and detection stuff all the way down to, uh, you know, very, very secure communications. Things like file sharding, where people talk about quantum encryption, we can actually take a file with some of our companies that shard secure in this case, and they can split it across multiple clouds. And if you know one day Amazon has a hiccup or Google has a hiccup, you know your data doesn't uh, doesn't disappear. So that's all we call secure by design. The second area is you know basic hygiene. So this is you know endpoint detection and response, you know better forms of, of patching, better forms of uh, of, of, of authentication especially if you're bringing it in a form to a market that doesn't have it. I think that one of the best examples of this is Huntress Labs. Huntress is a leading EDR product solution where they monitor your, truly really an MDR, but they're monitoring your endpoints for uh, precursors of attacks, actual attacks in progress, but they're focused on the MSP. When I left Tenable, 
If somebody said, hey, we are going to invest in MSP, a small business cybersecurity, man, the real big money's in enterprise, right? But now the way things are, people are turning to this uh, category as a really important thing. That's our second category. We're trying to bring hygiene and, and um, you know, hunting to, to, to everybody else. And then the last area we invest in is we, we, we don't just want to be cyber you know, focused. And we do try to do some investments in, in non-cyber stuff so we can learn about those things. We've done investments in like Hawkeye 360. We've got a, a jet engine company called Wave that came out of uh, University of Maryland. And it's really interesting having investments in these types of companies because we can see what kind of requirements and certifications and uh, frameworks that these companies have to operate by. So, uh, so that's kind of an overview of Google Tech Adventures. Okay. Well, let's dig into that a little bit more. Um, you know, as a starting point, I, I'd love to maybe hear your point of view on how investing today in you know the middle of March 2023 is uh, different than maybe some of the investment periods, you know, over the last six to 12 months. So could you speak to just some of those, those changes that you, you've observed? Well, the biggest change right now is that if you have a company that's up and running, profitability is more important than, you know, potential market gathering or, or you know, what percentage of the market you can, you can gather. So having a company that actually looks a lot like what Tenable did, like a product that people spent money for and made a profit, is more interesting for a tech company then maybe a great idea that if you put $10 million of investment, you might have a $100 million, you know, company down, you know, down the road. And, you know, we'll see how long this lasts. I think it's going to last for a while. Uh, also, because some of the reasons we talked about that, you know, these niche products are hard to show value from. It's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a funny thing to say niche because when you step out of cybersecurity, you look at like the market cap of, of Microsoft. You know, almost every cyber company is a niche company in, in the market. So I'm just saying relative, like when you walk the floor on RSA and I said, here's free money, right? Go buy 10 of these products. But then you have to come back to your organization, deploy them, rip out your old stuff. Do it. There's a lot of resistance to, uh, you know, to, to doing that. So something that's really changed is that companies, as, as they raise money, they are looking for investors who bring more than money. Uh, most of the leading cybersecurity funds have got, you know, their hundred or so chief information security officers who can do, you know, proof of concepts, uh, pilots, uh, and things like that. So it's it's once once you kind of get going, and uh, there's I don't really like to name you know a whole lot of companies and whatnot, but once you kind of get going, you can kind of prove it out that if this is a company that's worth investing in, and uh, yeah. you can almost write the press release, you know, when you see the first or second company come out based on who their investors are how they kind of go down, down the road. Uh, I don't see a whole lot of, um, you know, companies that are going to, to, to kind of get to that public offering right now. Most of the cyber companies that I talk to are probably looking to get acquired, you know, possibly through private equity, which is another thing that's changed. Private equity is a valid exit for a lot of organizations. It used to kind of be a dirty word. And now it's almost like a pleasant uh, uh, injection of capital where companies can you know, maybe get more funds to complete the vision of the founder. So a lot of changes from just even a year ago. Yeah. Well, a, a few things I'm curious to dig into, um, you know, first of which being the change to, uh, you know, the the most important or a key aspect being profitability of a business. And, and that may be exposing companies that are a, a bit niche or difficult to implement, or, you know, I guess said simply more of a, a, a nice to have than a need to have. 
Um, so I'm curious to hear maybe how it is that you go about evaluating that as part of your investment process um, to find organizations that, you know, sort of mitigate those risks, right? They're, they're need to have solutions. They're easy to implement. Um, customers are willing to, you know, to go to bat to add another vendor and implement a new solution. So could you speak to just, you know, how you go about evaluating that as a, as a factor? Yeah, so we're we're stage agnostics. So we'll do seed, we'll do A. We've even been pulled in to do some do some B, and you know a lot of our expertise at Google Attack is is we do a lot of FedGov, but we also done you know large enterprise and small business. So there's a lot of different things we can we can help out organizations as they grow in size, as they grow in customer account. You know, how, what's their org chart look like? What is their uh, you know what should their Salesforce look like? What is their model uh, look like? Like I've, I've met some companies and I've said. I don't want to invest in you, but if you switch to an OEM model, you know, you might actually be profitable and, and have a really decent chance of having your tech, you know, out there. So I ask, I ask a lot of people, you know, five questions. So what problem do you solve? How do you solve it? You know, can you show me any proof at all of the problem you're solving? What's your ask? Like, what are you going to do with the money? And then what's your version of success? And usually one through four people can ask, even if I catch them flat footed. But if I ask them, what's your vision of success? They, a lot of times, don't have a good answer for that because people, you know, in this society, we're, 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 you know, nobody wants to say they want to get rich, right? And they might try to be clever and say that they want to take care of their family or they want the best outcome for their employees, right? But it's the same thing, right? If you create a company and you have stock and you kick butt and Microsoft buys you someday, well, okay, if you're so smart that you can reverse engineer the latest malware or phishing campaigns, why can't you, you reverse engineer what your stock price is going to be and what that means for your family, you know, and, 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 and that. And another way to answer the vision question is, you know, what does it mean to uh, how it changes our daily lives? And a lot of times, a lot of people, when they come to cybersecurity, they have a great idea, but they have a lot of humility. They don't think that they can go out and change how people browse the internet securely or change, you know, how machines are patched or, or audited and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm looking for, for people who have a certain sense of solving a problem and what does it mean? And for almost every company we invest in, we've got a story like that of what it means and why not only is it a good financial investment, but why it's going to change people's lives. So on that, that last question, um, you know, what sort of your impression if, if someone has a response, something to the effect of, yeah, you know, this is, this is our mission in terms of helping improve our customers' lives and changing this aspect of uh, the security industry and along the way you know, we're going to make ourselves a lot of money and our employees a lot of money. Maybe they word it a little bit more, more delicately than that. But if you hear that, is that a good thing, a bad thing, or are you, you indifferent? Yeah, what we're, what we're working with is, is context, right? So if somebody has, they make a statement where, hey, we want to go public someday and we're going to solve internet security. That's probably a little bit too broad and not yeah. very context, right? But if, but if someone is like, look, we're going to cut the price of uh, fraud for credit card transactions, you know, we're going to, and we're going to, re- and, and, and because of that, we're going to be able to charge this, but our goal is to really stop credit card fraud. And this is how we're going to measure it. Yeah, let's have a conversation, right? Because mm-hmm. now we're at least in the ballpark and, and we can do that. And we've had a lot of companies where they say, hey, look, we think we can do X, Y, and Z. And, uh, you know, because of that, you know, we can solve this and people should pay for this. And, you know, therefore we can build a solid company. 
And, and once you, once you're in the ballpark, you can have a conversation and that's, that's really what it comes down to. I think most investors are looking for, they're looking to have that, um, Hey, that's a ride I can go on. Right. That's a team I can work with. That's an outcome I can help. Uh, I can help bring the vision. And that's what I think most investors are looking for. Yeah. I know it varies a bit just depending on, on who you talk to. But uh, one thing I'm, I always like to ask investors is how do they prioritize team tech and market? And I'm, I'm sure it varies by, by stage, whether it's seed, A, B, et cetera. But, um, you know, just as part of your thesis and your philosophy for your investment, uh, what's sort of your, your prioritization of, of team tech and market? Yeah, their past performance does not imply future for performance. You know, there's a lot of examples of, of founders, great founders who've gone on and done maybe not the best, you know, second act. And there's a lot of people who've done second acts, but they want to now go into investing or, or, or that sort of thing. So, you know, even though I had two good exits, Tenable and Network Security Wizards, you know, when we started investing, it really took, a, you know, a while to get the track, track record going because, just because you can run a company doesn't mean you could run a great a, a great VC, and uh, I guess I shouldn't call ourselves a great VC. But you get my point, right? It's it's uh, it's a different set of of tasks. I get a lot of CISOs who start companies. I go great. Just because you bought and operated a security thing doesn't mean you could go do that. So so I like to evaluate every opportunity on its own. We look. Mm. We might like the team. We might like the tech. Might be a horrible financial deal. Right, it might be a great financial deal, but the team's so-so, the tech's so-so. It's got to be something that that I think is going to make a difference for either the customers of this or or the founders. I do like to invest in founders if they got you know we get a chance to help them get a single or a double with with the company that they'll come back and do a uh, do a bigger and more more bolder you know company the second third time. Yeah, you, you mentioned uh, Gulatech being. Um, you know, in, in investing maybe more broadly being, uh, you know, something that you hadn't had, I, I guess, like explicit experience with or being like your, your core focus um, coming from entrepreneurship. So as you've sort of operated Gulatech and, you know, not just invested, but done your philanthropy work and, and your work with, you know, supporting uh, public policy efforts as well, what have been some of maybe your reflections or, or biggest lessons learned throughout the experience? So when it comes to philanthropy and commercial companies, I've, I've really felt that to solve cybersecurity, you really need a balance of tech with people and correct government policy because none of these by themselves is going to solve this problem. So one of the things we realized for philanthropy is that a lot of times these philanthropy, these nonprofit organizations are just like a commercial startup. Now, of course, they don't make money. They have to raise money from donations. But if you think of the commercial for-profit cycle of getting a seed round, an A round, a B round, you know, getting to keynote a conference, you know, getting some, the nonprofits have that same cycle. And we realized that when we started getting involved with nonprofits, they would often go on to achieve better funding. Uh, so for example, uh, one of the, uh, uh, founders, or one of the companies that we've, uh, one, sorry, one of the nonprofits that we've awarded to, Empower, uh, they got to participate in a White House led uh, cyber jobs program conversation, right? Now, of course, they have to do many, many things. It's not just working with Google Tech, but we, you know, we, we saw this and we we're like, we, we really feel like doing this was, was something. So we switched to just doing straight philanthropy to doing uh, competitive grants 
and we're doing a, yeah. uh, a competitive grant right now that will be uh, having a um, the grant award ceremony at RSA next month. And uh, if people want to check that out, come to Google.tech and check that out. But we're expecting the winners of these grants to go on and basically double down on what they're doing and, and, and see if they can get to a level better. Doing the grants, philanthropy, and also doing the tech investing has got us a chance to really go and talk to a wide variety of policymakers. And, uh, you know, and just at least be in the room, share our stories, give feedback. And uh, we've had a lot of good conversations with this administration. We've had a lot of good conversations with previous administration. And, uh, you know, even at the state uh, state level, we've had conversations with what people can do to defend their state citizens, defend the country, encourage more cybersecurity jobs, encourage more cybersecurity economic development. And we're happy to share a lot of that information. Yeah. You know, on the topic of, of public policy, like one, one thing I've always found personally interesting about the cyberspace is that obviously there's national security implications and it's it's important for the federal government to be paying very close attention to it. Um, but the, the difficult thing or the unique thing about cyber is that a lot of the critical infrastructure that, you know, the federal government would care about is in the hands of private individuals or private corporations. Um, so with that context, I'm, I'm curious, and we could do a separate, you know, 45 minute interview focused just on this topic, but, you know, from a policy standpoint, what do you think are, are some of the, uh, maybe changes that need to take place, um, or just difference, uh, different ways that, you know, we should be thinking about things from a policy standpoint within cyber. So it's, it's really interesting because when, when, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos started Amazon, when uh, uh, you know, Bill Gates started Microsoft, you know, they didn't say, hey, we're going to get to this point. We're going to be this billion dollar, trillion dollar organization. And then the government's going to help us defend uh, yeah. our, our network against China and Russia. Right. But this is really what goes on. If you think about how hard it is to be just do basic cyber hygiene, who should pay for that? You know, it's not a secret how to keep your your stuff secure. Right. Patch your stuff. Get a good good password, right? Don't use USBs, right? Be aware of phishing, right? It's not that hard to not get fished and not get ransomware, but yet it still happens. So whose role is it to, to, to do this? Now, on one hand, um, I like to think the private sector, you know, can figure out cheap ways to do these things. On the other hand, you know, the government might be pushing down, you know, mandates. But actually with the most recent uh, uh, cyber, national cybersecurity strategy, there's actually a lot of talk about the government sharing the cost of things like cyber insurance and maybe even funding, you know, organizations and companies to do things like, um, you know, memory safe coding practices and whatnot. So we're entering a new world where I think the government and society might look more at cybersecurity like healthcare. And if you think about, you know, how much money the government funds to do research of certain drugs and cures and, and whatnot, there's still a profitability margin there. But sometimes it doesn't make sense for private sector to do these investments. In cybersecurity, we might see the same thing. And we actually push at Google Tech this concept of data care, where it's something is, that people will recognize and as uh, a um, quick parallel to like the healthcare system, where you have everybody from cybersecurity experts that are brain surgeons all the way down to maybe nurses, practitioners, people who tell you to take your vitamins more on the, the cyber hygiene side. So that's kind of the world I see us moving into, how quickly we move into it, how quickly we have a massive cyber attack that you might accelerate something like that. We'll wait and see. Yeah. I, I would love to understand maybe, you know, a bit more of a personal question, but what is it that kind of motivates you to 
do this type of work uh, of not just, you know, finding and investing and supporting the next great cybersecurity technology businesses, but think about it a lot more holistically in terms of, you know, hopefully enabling the public policy um, associated with, you know, supporting cyber within the U.S. as well as the philanthropic work um, to, you know, have more of a well-rounded approach to uh, advancing cyber. Like, what are the things that maybe motivate you to do that? Yeah, the big thing is that cybersecurity is still living in a bubble. We have our own language. We have our own experts. We have our own conferences. And outside of that, you know, the general public just does not understand. They didn't go on the journey that that uh, maybe I think I think I saw a stat that most people who are in cyber right now have only really been in cyber like six to six to ten years. They certainly didn't go on the, the journey that I went on 20, 25 years ago. So because of that, there's no context. And whether I'm talking to a policymaker or a board or a teacher of a fifth grade class, they don't have the tools to teach, educate, and make an accurate decision about cybersecurity, which again is why I'm pushing this concept of data care. So a little bit more to understand, but easier to understand, a little bit more personal. Um, but that's really what drives us at Google Tech Adventures. We see this huge gap between the risk of having a uh, you know, a society that can be attacked and possibly a democracy that can be subverted, especially when we're struggling with nation states out there, we see a huge problem with that. How do you balance an open and safe society, democratic society with transparency is one of our strongest assets when you've got Russia and China basically undermining us with fake social media posts, you know, um, you know, that facial recognition, all these kind of things you hear about. So, so, so yes, our work is not done. And that's one of the reasons we're leaning in and trying to invest, trying to do grants, trying to talk to the policy folks. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I'd love to uh, pivot a bit into the way we wrap up uh, every interview here, which is the uh, the rapid fire round. Um, so basic premise is I ask you a few quick questions and, and you share whatever comes top of mind. Sound good? Sounds great. All right, cool. Uh, starting with what's your favorite book? So the favorite book, it's a three book series called The Three Body Problem. One of my favorite books, there's so many parallels with uh, cybersecurity today, uh, with how uh, the people in the books have to deal with the threats that they see from across the universe. Great book. Cool. All right. Next question. Um, what is different about running a company or founding a company today versus founding a company in the late 90s, early 2000s? So there's a lot more... Uh, chance of whatever you do as a CEO to be uh, magnified on social media, you know, whether it's Glassdoor or a TikTok or an Instagram uh, comment. So I used to say that whatever you say to the press, your customers and your employees and your investors, it better be the same thing. That's even more true today because if you take something out of context and somebody else amplifies that, that's not the message you want to give out. So you've got to be even more consistent with your message and vision now than ever before. Yeah. If you could change one thing about the cybersecurity industry, what would it be? Change the name. I want to call it data care. And uh, it's going to make it more appealing to everybody. And we can still have cybersecurity budgets, cybersecurity experts. Data care is more and more resonant to the average person out there. I'll have to rename the pod, the business of data care, but I'm, I'm open to it. <laughs> great. Um, all right. Last question. If you could uh, go back in time and get a drink with your 20 year old self, what advice would you give him? Wow. Um, I'm, I had a good, 
I, I had a good time when I was 20. So I, I, what would I advice I get them? Don't worry so much, you know, don't worry so much. I mean, I think the biggest thing getting into cybersecurity was there was a lot of famous people that I got to meet and I never really said, Hey, I want to be like them, but I was a little intimidated to kind of go up and talk to them. Like I hadn't done anything yet or anything like that. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I told them. Just do your thing. There's so many, so many big needs, so many big needs in cybersecurity that people should be willing to step up and, uh, and share and participate. Very good. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Ron. Thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time to chat with me today. Thanks for the opportunity. Anybody out there wants to start a company, come say hi. <laughs>